Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your word, for all of scripture. And we thank you that it is all breathed out by you, your own words. So Father, we pray that we would treat it like that. Tonight we pray that you'll help us to understand this difficult passage, yes. Uh, But more than that, we pray that you'll help us to set aside uh, that judgmental spirit we can sometimes have to your word, where we come and say, oh, I think I know better than that. Instead, Father, help us to change our minds and change our thinking to bring it into line with your word, rather than to seek to change your word to bring it into line with our minds. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, if you remember, and open up your Bibles, so uh, if you haven't got one in front of you, stick up your hand and one of our singers will get one for you or someone there will. Uh, But open up Romans chapter 8, the end of Romans chapter 8. You remember Troy uh, opened up this wonderful passage for us and it really is the high point of the book of Romans. And I know you guys laugh at me uh, when I say this is the greatest verse in the Bible and then I say it the next week and then the week after and all that sort of thing. But it's hard not to when you're looking at Romans 1 to 8 because there is nothing more important that has ever been written. So, you know, if you've done your history lessons and all that sort of thing, there's actually no piece of literature, no piece of writing that has changed the world more than Romans chapters 1 to 8. Uh, It's the most important thing ever written. And when you go back through history, it was when people read Romans that people rediscovered the gospel over and over and over again and rediscovered God's love for us and God's grace for us. Because the message over and over again in those first eight chapters is that you are saved by grace. It is a free gift of God and you receive that not by works, not by what you do, but simply by faith by trusting in what Jesus has done for us. And so last week we got this incredible high point. And so I'm such a nice boss that I let Troy preach my favourite passage. You know, isn't that nice? Aren't I nice to Troy? Uh, and I saved the hard one for me. You know, that's the sort of guy I am, Troy. Um, but we got to that high point. Look at these verses again. Verses uh, Romans 8, 38 and 39. Look at them. They're on your outline or in your Bible. It says, For I am persuaded... That not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Aren't they incredible verses? Because what they are saying is, if you are in Christ, if you have received that wonderful gift by trusting in him, then nothing can get in the way of that. Nothing nothing can stop it happening because it's already been done. Jesus has already died for you, so nothing can separate you from the love of God. And I want to say, if those verses don't sort of grip you in your heart and grip you in your guts or wherever it is you get gripped, if they don't, I've got nothing else for you. You may as well go home tonight. Because I've got nothing else for you. That is it. That's the gospel. That's our message. That is what it's all about. And if that doesn't excite you, if that doesn't grip you, then, then there's nothing else. I can't come up with another sermon for you. I can't come up with another message, another verse. That is the message of the gospel. Jesus has done it all for you. Trust him. Because nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Uh, and I want you to think back. I want you to remember. Do you remember when you first understood that? Just think. You might remember a time or a date when you first got the gospel. When you first became a Christian. It may have been 50 years ago. It may have been last week. It might have been as Troy was preaching last week that you first got it. it. might have been 30 seconds ago as I read out those verses. For me, it was 20 years ago that I really grasped it, that I came to understand that incredible joy, that security that comes from knowing the love of Christ. Uh, but I want to say, for the Christian, that joy is always tempered with a sadness and with an unease. Because, you see, there's the other side of the coin from that wonderful message. And the other side of the coin is when we think about other people we know who don't follow Jesus. You see, for some of us, it's what about my mother? Or what about my father? For, for some, it's what about my child who seems to have walked away from the gospel or my grandchild or, or whoever it is. Uh, for some, it might be, especially if they've become a Christian after you've got married, it's what about my husband who hasn't yet grasped what I've grasped? What about my wife? What about those people I love who don't know Jesus, who still stand under the judgment of God? And so what do we do? We tell them the gospel, don't we? You never say that you love someone if you do not share the gospel with them. We tell them the gospel. And sometimes, by God's grace, they turn to God and find salvation. And that is the most wonderful moment. Wasn't that great last week, seeing two people get baptised? And, and joining with them in celebrating the fact that they have turned and found forgiveness in Jesus. And I can say I get excited whenever anyone becomes a Christian. But when I get most excited is here in our church when someone's family member who we've been praying for for ages becomes a Christian. That is sort of the high point of my life, the high point of my job. I hope it's the high point of yours. But you see, often what happens is we share the gospel with our loved ones and they don't respond. So despite our many attempts, despite our invitations to church, despite the fact we try and take them along to do Christianity Explained, or, or we sit and read the Bible with them, they're just not interested. Or they reject Jesus outright and say, oh, no, 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 I've heard what you've got to say, but I don't believe it. Every Christian knows that pain, don't they? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that pain. Is there anyone who doesn't have a loved one, who doesn't have a close friend, who doesn't know Jesus? Well, we are not the first people to feel that pain. Every Christian from the very beginning has felt that pain. And the Apostle Paul knew that pain. But he didn't just feel it for his mum and dad or for his brother and sister. He felt it for his whole people, for his nation, for the people of Israel. So look at what he says in chapter 9, verse 2. He says, I have intense sorrow and continual anguish in my heart. For I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. You see what he's saying there? That word cursed, the old translations would say anathema. And what, what he's saying is, I would go to hell. I would give up my salvation and get cast into hell if it meant that my people, Israel, would just receive Jesus and be saved. 
You see, Paul was grappling with the problem that most of his fellow Jews had rejected Jesus. They had said Jesus is not God's promised king. He's not the saviour. He's not the Messiah. And they'd refused to believe in him and follow him. Many had. The early church was Jewish. Don't ever forget that. Uh, we are the Johnny-come-latelys, we who are not Jewish. The early church was all Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. But initially, many became Christians, thousands in one day, if you remember in the book of Acts. But many didn't. In fact, the majority didn't. And they said, no, 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 Jesus is not who you say he is. And more than that, they then persecuted the Christians. And so Paul is overcome that so many of his people are still standing under the judgment of God. Well, at the same time, every day he was watching Gentiles, people like you and I, sort of lapping up the gospel and accepting it and being saved. And he was overcome with joy for that. But even as he saw the Gentiles becoming Christians, he kept looking back and saying, but what about my people? What about the Jews? What about them? Now, as I say, if you have any loved ones who don't know the Lord, you feel what Paul is talking about here, don't you? Uh, but another part of us sort of wants to say, yes, Paul, I feel your pain for your people, but, but there are other nations and people who seem really hard to the gospel as well. So, you know, there are other countries where very few people seem to want to listen to and hear about Jesus. So think of all those countries in the Middle East where Islam is dominant and think of the former Christian Europe in places like France and, and uh, Spain and Italy and places like that where people don't want to hear the message of salvation by grace, by faith alone. Even modern-day Australia, people seem very hard to Jesus. And so it's a bit funny to get sort of caught up on just the Jews. So people ask, why doesn't he feel that pain for other people as well? I think he would feel that pain for other people as well. But the thing here is, it's not just a personal problem for Paul. This is one of those moments in the Bible where the Bible asks a different question to the one we come with. In Romans 1 to 8, we've looked at earlier in the year, it comes with our questions. What must I do to be saved? That's my question. But here it's coming with a different question. And here he's recognising that there's actually a massive problem with the fact the Jews are not listening to the gospel. You see, it's actually a theological problem. And the problem was the Jews were meant to be God's covenant people. But here they were rejecting Jesus. So look at how he puts it in verse 4. He says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises, the ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Messiah, who is God over all, praise forever. Amen. You see what he's saying there? He's saying Israel are God's chosen people. And he lists out all these things that God gave them. God adopted them to be his nation. Not like one of many nations, but his nation. He said, this people... They are my people and these people aren't. And God made promises to them. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He gave them his law to keep. He gave them his temple. Unlike any other nation on the earth, he said, I will come and I'll live right in the middle of you. I'll dwell with you. And more than that, when he sent his son into the world, who did he go to? He came from them, he was a Jew, and he came to them. 
First to the Jews. They had all of God's promises. But despite all of that, when Jesus came, when the one who fulfilled all the promises to them came, what did they do? This people, the Jews, a massive proportion of them rejected him and refused to believe in him. While many believed in Jesus, many, in fact, the majority rejected Jesus when he came. And that creates a massive problem for us. And the enemies of Christianity pointed out, you see the problem? What they said was, if God promised the Jews all these things, and you receive these things by trusting in Jesus, and all these Jews are rejecting Jesus, does that mean that God hasn't kept his promises? Does that mean God can't be trusted? See why this is so important? See why it's a theological problem, even though it's not a question any of us have ever asked? People say, look, either God isn't strong enough or powerful enough to keep his promises, or secondly, God is a liar who never meant to keep his promises. And so do you see how important it is? Because if God didn't keep his promises to Israel, if it can be proved that God didn't keep his promises to his Old Testament people, then we should say, well, why do we know he'll keep his promises to us? How do we know that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ? How do we know that we have this promise of eternal life and freedom from condemnation? So that's the question he's dealing with in these chapters 9 to 11. Has God failed to keep his promises? And so Paul puts his answer very succinctly in verse 6. Look there. The answer is no. Look at what he says. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's word hasn't failed. God hasn't failed to keep his promises. And for the next three weeks, today and the rest of chapter 9, then in chapter 10 next week and chapter 11 the week after, he explains why. He gives these different reasons for why. So we're going to look at the first reason, and it's this. It's that we don't get to decide who God's promises are for. God does. Or as I put it on your outline, God has always chosen his children. So look with me from verse 6. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. Now, if you don't know your Old Testament you would have said, what on earth is he talking about there? Uh, you need to know your Old Testament, in particular the book of Genesis from chapter 12 through to chapter 50 to grasp what he's talking about. But what he's talking about is Abraham. 2,000 years before this was written, God made his promises to Abraham, this one man. He chose him and said, I am going to promise to you. And the promise is for you and for your descendants. That's who it's for. And the Jews who were descended from Abraham... They thought that that meant that those promises applied to every one of them if they could just trace in their family tree that somewhere Abraham was somewhere back there somewhere many generations ago. But, Paul says, right from the beginning, God made it very clear that he never intended that every physical descendant of Abraham would receive the promises. So right from the start, Abraham had two sons. What were their names? Isaac and Ishmael. Now there's a reason no one in our church, when they have a child, names their child Ishmael. And the only Ishmaels we ever see are people who are converted as adults. 
And there's a reason lots of Christian parents say, I want my child to be called Isaac. Why is that? Because God said, it's Isaac who will be blessed and not Ishmael. And so you see, right from the start, God's promises are not for everyone descended from Abraham, but for those through the son Isaac. Then Isaac had two sons. What were their names? If you can't answer this question, you need to sign up for Intro to the Bible at the beginning of next year. And you need to know your Bible. You don't know this. It's not good enough. You need to know it. So what were his two sons' names? Jacob and Esau. And again, do we ever get anyone called Esau? Brought for baptism as a child. No, but we have Jacobs coming out of every corner, you know. Why? Because Jacob was the child of the promise. You see, that's why Christians call their child Jacob. And God chose Jacob as the one to benefit from his promises. From the very beginning, it was clear, and it just went on throughout all of Israel's history, God would choose which descendants of Abraham would be the ones who would receive the benefits of his promises. So the problem of so many of the Jews not accepting Jesus is not really a problem at all. He's dealt with it there. It's not actually really a problem at all. No one should ever expect that every Jew would be saved. No one should ever expect that every Jew would say, there is Jesus, the Messiah, and I will worship him. Because every other prophet who had come through their history, some had listened and others had rejected. And so God always chose what the Bible calls a remnant, a people from within the people, the true Israel from within the nation of Israel. God's promises apply to the true Jews, the true Israel, those Jews who then believe in his promises and who then put their faith in Jesus. Now, that answers the question that Paul raised. But in doing that, in sort of answering that question, he knows that it raises another question for us. And that's where this passage gets controversial and difficult and so forth. What is that question? It's, what do you mean by God chooses? Because you see, I nearly actually said it as I was preaching. I nearly said there was the true Israel within Israel and they were the people who believed in the promises. But it doesn't say that. It says, no, the true Israel within Israel are the ones God chose. It wasn't about them being faithful, it was about God choosing them. And only then were they faithful. So how can he say that God chooses who he will bless? God chooses who he will save, God chooses who he will forgive. See, we tend to focus on us. And that's right, because Romans 1 to 8, which we've been looking at, focuses on us. And it says, you are saved, how? By faith. You need to make a decision. You need to choose. Do I believe in Jesus? Will I turn away from my sin? Will I trust in him for my forgiveness and salvation? And that is all true. But what the Bible says here in Romans 9 is undergirding all of that is this doctrine we call election or predestination, which says that I only choose God because he first chose me. Troy touched on it last week in chapter 8. He said, before I decided, God decided. See, God decided before he created the world who he was going to save. God didn't just know who would turn to Jesus for forgiveness. God just didn't, didn't just sort of look down through the ages and say, ah, there, Damo, he's going to choose, so I'll choose him. It's not how it worked. Before he even thought of Damo, he said then, hey, Damo, actually, God, there's never a moment where God hadn't thought of Damo, but... 
or anyone else. But God said, I am choosing this one. I am choosing Damo. He probably would have called you Damien, but (laughs) I am choosing Damien and I will save him. See, God actually decided who would turn to Christ. Understand this, please. The Bible is really clear. We are responsible for our decision to choose Jesus, or for that matter, not to choose Jesus, to reject him. Uh, But behind it all is God's sovereign choice. Now, this doctrine of predestination is a hard truth for us to accept. I have lost count of the number of home groups that have been derailed by a discussion on this topic. Uh, and it raises lots of awkward questions in our minds. You're, there's some people there who groan, and so it must have happened last Wednesday night at your groups. But anyway, uh, and you're probably thinking of the questions already, aren't you? You know, does that mean God isn't fair? Does God have favourites? And Paul knows we'll have those questions, so he deals with them head on. Look with me from verse 14. He says, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Is, is God unfair? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. Now these are the key verses. So just look at these closely. You see what it's saying? Is God unjust because he chooses some and not others? The answer is not at all. God is totally just. Because it's about mercy and compassion. See, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, no one will ever be able to say, God was unfair to me. No one will be able to say that. But what people will be able to say is that God was overly merciful and overly compassionate to some, those he saves. To others, he gives what we all deserve. So no one will ever be able to say, God gave me less than I deserved. Please listen carefully here. Please get this. It is so important. If God gave everyone what we deserved, how many people would be saved? None. Your silence was either that you've fallen asleep or that you understand the answer. No one will be saved if God gives everyone what they deserve. See, if God gave everyone what we deserved, hell would be full and heaven would be empty. That's the reality. But by his grace, God, in his mercy, has compassion on those who he wants to have compassion on. But we're still uncomfortable, aren't we? Why do we find this so hard, do you think? The reason we struggle with it is because we don't actually take sin seriously enough. That's why we struggle with it. See, in our hearts, we don't believe that every person really does deserve God's judgment for their sin. We don't really believe that we deserve it. So you see, we have to remember, it's not like I am in this innocent state. It's not like I'm in this neutral position. We are not helpless and innocent In the face of God's decision. God is dealing with us as sinners. He doesn't owe us anything except judgment and condemnation. For failing to give him the honour he deserves. So if God chooses not to choose someone. If he chooses not to reveal the truth about Jesus to someone. It's not an injustice. 
It's an act of just judgment. See, he's giving that person what we all deserve. It's essential that we get this. No one gets less than they deserve. But in his mercy, some get so much more than we could ever deserve. I've got $10 here, $10 in my pocket. And uh, I'm going to pick someone at random. It's not at random, actually. It's my choice. It is my choice so I'm going to get, give this to. And because Bernie's got such a big smile on her face there, I'm going to give her $10. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> God provides. There you go, Bernie. I was really worried the microphone was going to go off as I went there. But anyway, it didn't. Bernie, just got $10. You don't have to give it back to me. It is yours. It's yours to spend on what you will. If you want to be generous to someone else with it, you can. If you want to keep it for yourself, you can. But it's Bernie's. And I chose Bernie for no reason, other than when I looked up, she was smiling at me, but that's, that's another matter. But that's because actually she heard the sermon this morning. She was looking for it. Now I get what you're saying. Like, yeah, there you go. That's right. But really, do any of you now have the right to say to me, how dare you give $10 to her? Do any of you have the right to say, if you give $10 to Bernie, you've got to give it to every one of us? Other than that would make me destitute and, you know, that sort of thing. But you don't have the right to. It would be stupid to say you had the right. It would be different if I owed you the money. If for some reason, you know, if you'd done something for me and I owed you $10, that would be, you'd have a point there. It's like, how can you give them a free gift when you owe me the $10? But if I don't owe you the money, if I do owe you the money, come and tell me afterwards and I'll pay you back. But if I don't owe you the money, you don't have the right to say to me, you must give me a gift. Do you? If you do, there's something wrong in your mind. And you know, if you think that, because small children think that, my kids think that. You know, why have you given a present to Sam? That means I need it too, says Eloise. You know, but that's not just Eloise; it's all three of them. <laughs> but but as adults, we know that's not the way it works. We know that was a free gift, and I don't have the right to have the free gift just because they got the free gift. So I want to say to you, why on earth do you think you can say it to God? If you don't think you can say it to me. Because that's what people say to God. People say, how can you give them the gift and not me the gift or not that person the gift? It's mercy. It's compassion. It's not owed. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So says the God of the universe. Is God unjust for choosing some and not choosing others? No. But Paul knows that we're still uncomfortable. Because if God chose some and not others, then he knew when he was creating some people that they were going to sin and they were never going to repent and they were never going to turn to Christ for forgiveness. And so they were never going to be saved. And so the next question is then, well, how can God still judge them? How can God still hold them responsible when he made them knowing that's what was going to happen? So the Apostle Paul, knowing people ask that question, even though he's really already answered it, he brings it up. So look at verse 19. He says, You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So that's the question. What answer does he give? I'm going to read five verses here, so look carefully with me through verses 20 to 24. 
But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honour and another for dishonour? And what if God, desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath ready for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? On us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. See what he's saying there? He doesn't mince words, does he? His answer to our objection is, who do you think you are? That's his answer. Who do you think you are, O little human beings, to question the God of the universe? That's his answer. What is it to you if God did make some people knowing they would sin and knowing he was not going to save them? What is it to you if God did that? What is it to you if God did that so that the people he has chosen to show his mercy to might understand more about his holiness and his glory? Why can't God do that? What right do we, the created beings, have to tell the creator what he can and can't do? That's the answer. And there's a part of me that wants more of an answer. But I want to say it's a sinful part of me that thinks somehow I should be able to understand everything of the mind of God. Now, if we come back to this doctrine of election or predestination, I want to briefly talk a bit more about it. Every Christian grapples with this. You know, how can God choose, but I still be responsible for my decisions? How can that be? How does this work? And as I say, the person in me who likes everything to be neat and tidy and everything to fit into my small brain, that person in me says, why didn't Paul write Romans chapter 9a, where he explains how it works? But the Bible never explains it. It just states these two great truths. It says this is the key truth. Truth number one. God, for his own reasons and for his own glory, based on his own free choice, chooses some human beings for salvation. Why does he choose us? Because he knows we'll be better than other people? No, not at all. In fact, often he chooses the worst, the worst of sinners. God chooses because he is God and that is his right. But then secondly, at the same time as stating that truth, the Bible makes it clear that every human being, every one of us, is responsible for our decisions. We don't sort of get a get-out-of-jail-free card and say, oh, it's in God's hands, I'm not responsible anymore. No, 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 you're responsible. We are responsible for our decision to sin first, and we are responsible for our decision to accept or reject the gift of his son. Now, how can both of those things be true? The Bible never tries to solve that conundrum, just as they are. Just like it never tries to solve how Jesus can be 100% God and 100% man, fully God and fully man. It never tries to solve that conundrum, it just says it's true. Or how there can be one God in three persons, what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. Never tries to solve these conundrums. God just says to us, accept it as true because I am God and you are not. Because God's mind... And God's plans are infinite. And our minds are very, very finite. Some of us more finite than others. And as the Apostle says, who are we to talk back to God? 
It's actually a very good lesson for us in how we approach God's word. See, God has revealed enough to us. Enough so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. He has given all that we need to trust him and relate to him and live for him. And our job is to grapple with his word and seek to understand it. There's no excuse for being a lazy Christian who doesn't grapple hard with God's word. We have to work hard at discerning what the Bible has to say to us. But then, once it is spoken, our job is to accept what God has revealed to us, humbly and thankfully. And if we don't like what we discover, or we can't quite grasp how it all fits together, it is arrogant and dangerous to question God. What we have to do is change our way of thinking to fit in with what the Bible says. Whereas the temptation, and Christians have done it for 2,000 years, is to change what God's word says to fit in with my way of thinking. It is not our place to doubt God. It's not our place to make God submit to our reason and our minds and our thinking. It's actually the height of arrogance to do that and it's the heart of sin. We are not God. God is. But as we close, I want us to go back to the main point of this passage. Because all of that is really a secondary point that just came up from him making his main point back in verse 6. And his main point is this. God keeps his promises. That's the main point of this passage. God's word doesn't fail. God is calling his people out from every nation on earth, Jews and Gentiles. That's what those quotes from the Old Testament uh, that were read at the end of our reading in verses 25, 26, uh, 27, 28 and 29 are all about. They say, look, God is calling his people, those he has predestined, those he has chosen, he has called and he will call and he will save. And I want to say to you, even though it causes arguments in home groups and people argue about it and have for 2,000 years, this doctrine of predestination is meant to be a great comfort to us. That's why it's here in the Bible. But for some people, it causes problems. Uh, some people want to ask, what if my loved one is not chosen? How do we know who God has elected? What's the answer the Bible gives? You don't. And you can't. That's for God to know. Your job is just to keep telling them about Jesus. Keep praying for them. And if they respond in faith, well then you know God has chosen them. And other people, it causes fear because they say, what if I am not chosen by God? What if I'm not chosen? I think I am, but what if I'm not? Well, the Bible says to you, have you heard the call of the gospel? Have you heard the message that Jesus died for your sins and rose again? And if you say yes, then it says, well, have you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus? And if you say yes, well, then it says, then you are one of God's chosen people. So trust him. Because nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that is the point of this passage. God is faithful to his promises. His word has never failed and it will never fail. Nothing can separate you from the love of God if you trust in Jesus. So keep trusting him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your word, even though it causes issues for us and stirs us. Father, we thank you for it and we thank you for the wonderful truth that you have chosen us. Because we know that in our sinfulness, we would never choose you. 
So, Father, we thank you for this truth. And we pray for those known to us, our loved ones, who have not yet accepted Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And we ask that somehow it might be part of your will that they would do that. And we ask that you would give us the courage and the grace to share the gospel with them. And, Father, we pray for our attitude to your word. We pray that we would not be people who question you. We pray that instead we would come to your word with our questions and grapple with it and seek to understand it. But then once it is spoken, help us to be people who humbly sit under it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.